All right, welcome to another exciting episode of Until Dawn. My name is Coy, and with me is my beautiful wife, Felicia. Hello. All right, tell everybody a little bit about yourself so they know who we're, we're talking to. I am a hairstylist by day, paranormal investigator by night. I belong to the paranormal group Ladies Investigative Paranormal Society, also known as LIPS. They are based out of Columbia, Missouri, but I am in St. Robert, Missouri. I got interested in the paranormal as a child because my grandparents had a farm in southern Missouri that was haunted by a poltergeist. And my grandma always told me stories about things that were happening there. And that's what got me interested. All right. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the exorcism of 1949 that took place in St. Louis, Missouri. Of course, everyone knows now that the Exorcist movie was actually based on the exorcism that took place in St. Louis. It was an excellent day for an exorcism. So today we're going to be separating a little bit of myth from facts. Now, the Exorcist movie, of course, was based in Georgetown. Today we know now that the final exorcism took place in St. Louis. But where it actually started was in Maryland. Now, the whole story is centered around a 13-year-old boy whose name was never actually released in public. He was called Rolando in the diaries. He was very close with this aunt who lived in St. Louis. Her name was Mathilda Hendricks, but went by the name of Aunt Tilly. She had an active interest in spiritualism and the occult, and it's believed that she had taught Roland how to use the Ouija board to contact the other side. It is believed by many that the use of the spirit board or Ouija board with the Aunt Tilly and Roland is what brought about the possession or whatever did occur with him. Now, on January 26, 1949, Aunt Tilly passed away with multiple sclerosis. The activity with the boy actually started on January 15th. Yet the mom felt like maybe Aunt Tilly's spirit was causing some of the activity. So What activity was going on? They were hearing noises. They were hearing scratching on the walls, dripping in the walls, kind of like a water drip or dripping faucets. It escalated into the sounds of people walking in the hallway and dishes and objects were being moved around without explanation. I think it's what some people would kind of call poltergeist activity, which is also linked to adolescent teens. Caused by what? Stressful situations or? Hormones, stress. Which they thought because of Aunt Tilly dying. Right. But the mom um, actually used the Ouija board again with Roland and the grandma in order to try to contact Aunt Tilly. They asked her if it was her for her to knock three times. At first, there wasn't any noise at all, but then they said that Roland and the grandma heard a loud, like, swish of air above their head, and then there was three knocks on the floor. Now, I know this activity continued on even after they used a Ouija board to try to contact Aunt Tilly. I know towards the end of February, from what I've read, that his bed began to shake at night, so he couldn't sleep. His blankets and sheets were being pulled off the bed even when he tried to hold on to him and that uh, scratches began to appear on the boy's body as well yeah and a lot of the activity wasn't occurring to the boy during the day he was seemingly a normal teen during the day but it was at night after he'd get in bed that all the activity started occurring 
Now, I know you said towards the beginning of March, his mom actually thought that everything was just more originated there in Maryland and that they could actually leave and go to St. Louis, where she's she's from and has family there still, to kind of get away from everything. Correct. They went down to stay with her family for a while, which to me gives more credibility to the story because it wasn't easy to pack up and move like it. No, not is 1949. Now. No, so and it pretty much put a big strain on their family for them to do that. The dad was having to travel back and forth to visit, but then be at work, and he worked as a mechanic, so it's not like they had a lot of money right for the travel. Now, I know that when while they were there, the mother was talking, or was it while they were there or before they were there, that the mother was talking about going there, and his he actually ended up getting branded on his skin, the word Lewis, which kind of that, I guess, eventually led to them going there. Yeah, the mom felt like that was confirmation that they should travel to St. Louis. And when that happened, the boy's like hands and stuff was completely visible, and that there was other people that were there. Right. There was witnesses to say that he didn't mark himself in any way. Now, while they were in St. Louis, the activity occur- kept occurring. It was actually progressing and getting worse. And that's when a relative of his, I'm not sure who, it doesn't, I haven't found exactly who. She went to Reverend Raymond Bishop, who was actually a old professor of hers. And explained to him what was going on, going on, and asked him if he could assist the family. I know, I do know that towards the beginning of March, after she had contacted uh, Father Bishop, that he went to go see the boy. And while he was there, he saw scratches appear on the boy's body, and his mattress moving without without him doing it. Yeah, that's when he decided to contact Father Bowden and see if they could come in. He could come in and observe the boy also. Now, I know we're on the middle of March. This this is one of my favorite parts of this story, that Father Bowden actually came in. He observed the boy in the relative's house, and then Bowden blessed him with a holy relic. The best part of this is that the, the piece, it was a piece of bone from St. Francis Xavier's arm. I've never been blessed with a forearm before. <laughs> never been blessed at all. Uh, Father Bowden was the priest or pastor, I don't know, I'm not Catholic, at the St. Xavier Church in St. Louis, right? Yes, because they were located in Belnor, St. Louis, so I know, I want to say this is all real, real close to St. Uh, Louis University. Now, I know around the middle of March, Archbishop, Archbishop Joseph Ritter grant, did grant Bowden permission to perform an exorcism according to the Roman ritual. Bowden Bishop and another priest named Walter, I, I'm going to butcher this last name, Holleran, were all pretty much given the go-ahead. And then that night, around 10.15, they showed up at the boy's house and prayers and the exorcism actually began shortly thereafter. Now, when did they take him in for baptism? The baptism was, there was one attempt made for a baptism towards the beginning of March. It was said that the boy's uncle was driving him to the rectory for the ceremony. The boy suddenly glared at him, grabbed him by the throat, and shouted, You son of a bitch, 
You think I'm going to be baptized, but you are going to be fooled. I read during baptism, Catholic baptism rituals, they usually take about 15 minutes for the whole ritual. But with Roland, it took several hours. It was said that when the priests asked, do you renounce the devil and all his works, that Roland would go into thrashing rage. They would have to restrain him and wait for him to calm down to continue with the ritual. So after the priests had showed up that evening, this was back around the middle of March, when they were just about to start the exorcism, once all the priests were into the room, the boy was said to have gone into a trance, the bed began to shake, welts and scratches appeared all over the boy's body, and this continued on for over two hours. The boy was branded, scratched over 30 times across his stomach and chest. When Bowden demanded that the demon reveal itself, words like spite and hell began to appear on the boy's chest, and then the boy just continued to rock back and forth. Of course, if you look at the movie, this was the end of it. The main priest showed up one time at the end of the movie, performed the ritual, and that was it. Of course, in the true accounts, this was pretty much just the beginning. I'm just thinking about the movie Repossessed. <laughs> Repossessed. <laughs> That's when Father May I shows up. So now, at the end of March, the boy was then moved to the Alexian Brothers Hospital. Now, the uh, church did pick the Alexian Brothers Hospital because they were known for uh, their discreetness. They actually served as a hospital for alcoholic priests. And since they kept their mouth tight with that, they figured that they could trust them to not let information out on the exorcism in the child. Now, just like you did mention in the beginning when everything was starting back in January, how he seemed normal during the day and began to have incidents at night, this continued on even at the end of March. During the day, he really enjoyed learning his lessons in the Catholic faith because at the time, they were working on converting him to Catholicism. Yeah, they were Lutherans before this occurred. It was actually their Lutheran pastor? I don't know. Sure. Uh, your guess is as good as mine when it comes to that actually sent them to the catholic church because he said that they had catholic problems no <laughs> they had experience with this sort of thing catholic problems <laughs> hashtag catholic problems while he was at the alexian brothers hospital the boy was prepared at one point to receive communion the priests literally had to drag him into the church he broke out in a rage that, at the, that time, was worse than anything they had seen prior to that. Sorry, I'm just thinking. <laughs> I mean, I know that he's, like, possessed by the devil, but just the thought of them dragging him into a church to do all these things he didn't want to do. So while he was receiving his lessons in Catholicism, uh, Father Bodern decided to go ahead and let him return to his relative's house in Belnor, which is, I believe, northwest of St. Louis. But things continue to go downhill from there. So he returns to the church rectory, which is, I'm guessing, maybe at St. Louis University. St. Louis University. I know on April Fool's Day, April 1st, the boy is converted to Catholicism and is baptized at the church rectory. And on April 2nd, he makes his first Holy Communion. Now, April 4th, he actually goes back to Washington, D.C., the Maryland area where they actually 
originally were. Which was Mount Rainier is the name of the town. They take a train up there and everything goes well on the train. However, when they get there, they can't find anything to accommodate him, anywhere to continue to perform the exorcism. And people just all around weren't very welcoming to him. That's that's not surprising. I mean, you knock on the door. I need a room. I need to perform some exorcisms. It's 1949. People are probably not as open-minded. I mean, of course, I don't know if I'd let somebody in. Like, I kind of perform some exorcisms tonight. So since things weren't working out in Maryland, they pack everything up and head back to St. Louis. Once they get back from St. Louis, they go straight to the Alexian Brothers Hospital. Now, Father Bodern, he kind of felt stuck. He didn't know what to do. So he started reading into other possession cases and he learned about a case in Wisconsin that took place in 1870. So he decided to try some of those techniques or rituals and he forced Roland to wear a chain of religious medals and to hold a crucifix in his hands. During this time Roland started questioning the meaning of certain Latin prayers and Father Bodern just kind of ignored him, didn't want to give in to the questioning. And then Five different witnesses said that Roland started screaming that he was a fallen angel. Bodern just continued with the ritual. So this is when the boys started saying, talking about he was the fallen angel. But then at the same time, they, all the people in the room started hearing another voice that they said was St. Michael the Archangel. And they, had, they said that they felt like the voice was coming from all around them. Like it wasn't coming directly from Roland. It was said that they heard the voice demand that the demon depart Roland's body. He started having what would be described probably as seizures and violent spasms. And then Roland set up and said, he's gone. And that's when he also said that the voice said he saw the vision of St. Michael standing pretty much above him, holding a flaming sword. At this point, the exorcism is considered successful and completed. Um, Later entries that were read in the bishop's diary, he had wrote, Since Monday at 11 p.m., there have been no indications of the presence of the devil. That's good. On August 20th, 1949, Washington Post, they ran a front-page story with the gripping headline, Priest Freeze Mount Rainier Boy Reported Held in Devil's Grip. That was written by Bill Brinkley, who actually later became a best-selling novelist and also worked for Life magazine. And it's said that William Peter Blady, I'm horrible with names if you don't already know that, cited this article as being an inspiration for his book The Exorcist, which was published in 1971. Then later, in 1973, the film that was based on that book came out in theater. And it said that if it was adjusted for inflation, The Exorcist would actually be the current top-grossing R-rated film of all time. I'm surprised it even got released in 1973, as ex- as extreme as it is. Yeah, I've seen reports that said that people were throwing up in the movie, that they had like paramedics on standby for people freaking out. But on the bright side, there was a huge amount of people that converted to Catholicism. Yeah, it was great for the Catholics. <laughs> so what's your opinion on this whole thing is it fake is it real i think i believe it 
I believe that it was true. I think that, well, just by trying to learn to do this podcast, there's so many different stories out there. I don't think anybody really knows what the truth is. Supposedly the diary that was found in the hospital when they were tearing it down. I think it's said that it's passed through several people's hands now and there's pages missing and I've read that it was a 26 page diary then I read that it was a 16 page diary so I don't I don't believe that anybody knows truly what happened even even the priest that assisted a lot with it he wasn't there during the whole thing so even he had like scattered memories of what was occurring right yeah you can't get that many people on the same page today you know and every one of them says the same thing to an extent and unless this boy lived on a sound stage with where he can levitate his bed and i don't believe the psychosis some people say it was all in his head it was a mental disability or he was having a traumatic event from his aunt dying right and what did he really have to gain from it it's not like he told a story and got a lifetime original movie right there's a lot easier ways to move to st louis right yeah i just feel that since there was no monetary gain i i don't see what why they would have lied or went through all the trouble that they did i also read something someone thought that Basically, the boy just started it to get out of school because he didn't want to go. He was kind of a troublemaker, and then it just went too, too far, and he got an exorcism performed on him. But I can't imagine that he'd put up with that for months. Right. That's and, that's some dedication. Like, right. You're you're committed, like for three <laughs> months of exorcisms. Right. The other thing that some people think is that the boy was pretty much just in the right place at the wrong time pretty much and became possessed by the devil but father Bowden was actually the target oh so he like used the boy to get to, to get, get to father Bowden. yeah he was living in maryland the devil was and he needed to get to st louis hopped in the boy and moved to st louis <laughs> and so which that makes that makes some sense why else would you know? Why else would the word Lewis appear on the boy? I'm just trying to figure out why they'd want to go to St. Louis just to see Nelly. I guess you and him are the only ones. <laughs> I will say that this is probably one of the hardest things to do a podcast on for a first podcast <laughs> because facts are hard to find. Well, it's because there's so many conflicting stories. Everybody has their own version and their own take on it. Yeah. I will say I do not want to go big or go home ever again. <laughs> so what are we going to do the next show on? I think we're going to do it on Black Mirror screen. I got a Black Mirror that I want to try out. If it was a video podcast, we could scry it on the, on the podcast. Yeah. It'll be kind of weird with us just sitting in silence staring at a mirror. Well, we're going to talk about the history of it, what they're used for. I did a class on it last year. Oh, so you can teach everybody how to use no, it? No, I can't. <laughs> All right. If you want to hit us up, you can find us on Twitter at Until Dawn Podcast, or if it's easier, you can just shoot us an email at Until Dawn Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Coy. And I'm Felicia. And this is Until Dawn.